You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. Good morning, Gateway. It's wonderful to see you. Happy summer to you. It's hard to believe the year is already, already halfway gone. We're here in July, um, but it's wonderful to see you. I cherish every opportunity I have to be here. I think this is my fifth opportunity to worship with you, and this has become now a home away from home. And so uh, with Pastor Charlie enjoying some much-needed family time, relaxation time, we pray that God be with them, that God restore them and bless them. And I'm very grateful to him for for this opportunity uh, to be with you uh, today. Um, There's a lot to catch up on, it feels like, of late. So I know it's only been two months since I've been here, but it feels like there's a lot to catch up on. First and foremost, uh, I commend you, congratulations, on uh, Pastor Christian being here. So that's a fantastic addition. This body, I had Christian in, I think, Three total classes, I believe, three classes, notwithstanding all the interactions we had in the hallway and outside of class. But Christian is an excellent student, and even beyond that, he's an outstanding person. Um, so he is one who is of uh, high character and will be an excellent leader here. And I'm grateful for two things. Um, one, I'm grateful that he has you, a healthy and thriving and loving church, to pray for him and care for him. And I'm thankful that you have him, that you can benefit from his talents and leadership and abilities and anointing. And so with all of that said, it's grateful. I'm, I'm so good to see that that's connected. It kind of, I had to do a double take when I saw him up here on the stage for a moment. I was kind of like, oh my word, you're supposed to be in class. But now... Here you are. Um, you went tubing yesterday, 39 students or so, only one hospital visit. Come on, don't tell me God ain't real. Don't tell me God ain't real. One hospital visit of 39 students going down a river. That's something else right there. That's a testimony. That's a praise report. I have another praise report for you. Ready? So almost every time I come here, the devil afflicts my family with some kind of illness, right? No illnesses this week. I know. Look at that. The demons have been exercised. I don't know what y'all have been doing, but it means a lot. And then another point of just kind of personal news. So uh, we have two children, 11 and 8, daughter and son. And we just found out recently that my wife is nine weeks pregnant. And so we're expecting, we're excited. And so there is some sickness in the house, I guess. It's just not viral. Yeah. Uh, but it was wonderful during worship to hear the sounds of children and babies. And that's a sign of a really healthy congregation. That those sounds, that's, uh, children are a sign to us that God hasn't given up on his church. Uh, they're a sign to us that God hasn't given up on our world. And they're not an interruption to us. They're God's gift to us. And we don't have children to have friends, says Stanley Hauerwas. Stanley Hauerwas says, if you're lonely, get a dog. Yeah, we don't, have chi- we don't have children to make friends, but instead we have children as a sign that to the world and to ourselves that God has not given up on us. They're disciples to raise. And so it's wonderful to hear that. And we've got another disciple coming into our house soon. So with Pastor Charlie out, the substitute teacher is in. I feel like I should call roll. We could watch a movie together or something in honor of good substitute teaching. But nevertheless, we are continuing in our summer playlist series, volume two, I believe, right? This is two years ago, I think you did this. And here we are again. Of course, there's no more beautiful book than the book of Psalms. But if you have your Bibles, please take them 
and open them with me uh, to the book of Psalms, chapter 133. 133. If you don't know where the book of Psalms is, just throw your Bible open. You've got a 90% chance you'll land there. Um, if you're looking on your phone, it's not as easy. And also, if you're looking on your phone, God does not love you as much. It's in the Greek, if you read it closely. We'll get you delivered. We'll get you delivered soon enough. Um, but as you turn there, I want us to go back to a specific biblical memory. Um, a memory, it's a key biblical memory, a memory that we celebrate every Sunday morning. It was the evening of the first day of the week, and the 11 remaining disciples and some other followers of Jesus had gathered into a kind of nameless Jerusalem home. The doors were dead bolted, the curtains were drawn, the security system was armed, and all the conversation had been hushed to a whisper. The only light in the room was a single candle that flickered in the middle of the room and you could see their shadows dancing on the walls and just the slightest of sounds would stir them into all kinds of panic. No one in or out. Unless, of course, you're going to tend to the body of their beloved teacher and friend. And on one occasion, on that particular morning, Simon Peter and John had gone out to see the tomb because they had heard that the body had been stolen from their friend Mary Magdalene. But when they got there, they left with more questions than they did answers. A couple hours after they got back, Mary Magdalene came. She's out of breath. She's rapping on the door. And she says that she has seen the man that she claimed was missing just a few moments ago. And they pitied her because they thought the disappointment had got the best of her. She was now hallucinating, as it were. And this is the last thing they needed, old wives' tales of a Jewish ghost walking around, especially one with a massive God complex. Because the, <laughs> because the people that had killed him were the people that were going to kill them if they found out that they were associated. And so they didn't know what else to do. They gathered in this home and they decided they were just going to wait it out. Terrified, helpless, scared, uncertain, not knowing what to do. There's a note in John chapter 20, verse 19, that if you're reading it, you might look over, but that's important for today. They were all gathered together. They were all gathered together. Psalm 133 is one of the most famous psalms in all of the Psalter. I often heard it growing up in context of the youth group and mission trips when there was a bit more drama than the youth pastor wanted, and he wanted to recommend unity to us. So Psalm 133 was often a go-to in that regard, but it's a part of what are called the Psalms of Ascent. There are 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 up through Psalm 134. Psalms of Ascent are unique for a couple reasons. First and foremost, because they all share this title, Psalms of Ascent. But more than that, they're all gathered together in one collection. So for example, we have multiple Psalms of David, but they're not all together. They're scattered throughout the book of Psalms. Here, the Psalms of Ascent are all together, which implies that they were probably their own collection before arriving in the book of Psalms, like a little mini EP before the album was released, as it were. We don't know what Psalms of Ascent means. Perhaps it was sung by those in Babylonian exile as they made their way from exile back home to worship God in the temple. Perhaps they were sung by those making their way from the broader land of Israel to the temple to worship because you have to go up the mountain to worship God in Jerusalem. Or perhaps they were sung as they ascended the stairs into the courtyard of the temple. Whatever the case, these psalms are for people on the move. And now as we read them, as inheritors of these texts, uh, we read them as people on the move marching upward to our heavenly Zion. 
And these songs accompany us on that way. They're unique also in their content. They're kind of small-worlded. That is to say that they're very concerned with matters of family, matters of mothers and fathers and children and traveling. And they're also concerned with Zion and Jerusalem. And we sing these songs as as we make our way to worship God. Psalm 133 is placed in a very specific place for a reason. Psalm 120, the first psalm of the collection, starts out in all kind of loneliness and despair and oppression. The psalmist longs for authentic and meaningful community. But by the end of the collection, in Psalm 133, we get a taste or a vision of what that community looks like. It's three short verses, and it reads more like a poem. It is a poem, in fact, more than a prayer. But it's an important psalm and one that God has before us today. So can we please stand this morning as you are able, as we prepare for the reading of the word of God. This is what the word of God says. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there, the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. Can you say amen to the reading of God's word? You may be seated. We're going to work through this psalm verse by verse, but before we do that, I want us to parachute in from a broader perspective and a broader level by posing this question to you. What exactly is the spirit of God up to? What is God's spirit doing? If you'll notice, our prayers and our songs are filled with all kinds of invitations to the spirit. We just sang one, come rest on us, fall on us, or flood this place and fill the atmosphere. We like natural disaster metaphors for God. Hurricanes, (laughs) flooding, typhoons, all are welcome. Earthquakes, right? As long as it's not a storm, the storm is somehow the bad thing, but everything else is up for grabs. So nevertheless, flood this place and fill the atmosphere. What are we asking of God when we ask these kinds of questions? What is the Spirit doing? Now, I am a Pentecostal kid. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I still am a Pentecostal person. Here's the problem. I'm a Pentecostal kid in a non-Pentecostal body, is what I often say. What does that mean? We Pentecostals are known for our emotional connection and expression with God, and we're known also for our physical experience of the Spirit of God. I hardly know that I have emotions and a body. As one comedian has said, that my brain is, my body is just a meat suit to carry my brain from one room to another. That's what I often feel like. Okay. So, as growing up in a Pentecostal church, I noticed, right, that as I was, as I would observe the room, that there was a correlation between us singing these kinds of songs and making those kinds of invitation and the service getting interesting. You know what I mean? Getting a little bit weird. Get ready, buckle up. The Spirit's about to do something. And so to survive in Pentecost, you have to come up with this informal list of when you know the Spirit's going to arrive. Would you like to hear my list? Here's my list. Number one, did you bring your friend to worship with you that morning? If so, it's bound to be the weirdest service in that church's history. Your poor Presbyterian friend has never seen an exorcism. They've never heard speaking in tongues. They've never heard somebody run the aisles. They've never heard a shofar. But they're going to get all four of them on that day. And in fact, they're going to get the snakes out here in just a second, right? 
You just say to your friend, I'm so sorry I invited you to my church. We won't do this again. Yeah, that's the first sign. The second sign, is it a morning or an evening service? Because the spirit likes to show up in the dark for some reason. You know what I mean? The evening services are more intense. Third, are you at a fall retreat or a summer camp? If, sh- if so, it's mandatory that the service be four to five hours long and that the altar call be three and a half hours of that service, right? God likes it when we get away. I've had genuine encounters in those moments, by the way, so I'm not poking fun by any means. Four, what's the speaker doing, right? Is he or she wearing a headset or holding a handheld? Now that makes all the difference because the anointing's in the handheld. (laughs) And beyond that, what about their sweat droplets? Because the anointing's directly correlated with the amount of sweat on their brow and how loud are they talking? And then fifth and finally, how many times have you sung the chorus and how many key changes have there been? Because I think there's a contractual obligation between God and God's people that at the fourth key change, the spirit must arrive. This is God's commitment to us. Now, I say all these things, of course, in jest, of one deeply committed to the Pentecostal tradition. And just because some things have been manipulated in the past does not mean they're inauthentic, does not mean that everything's broken. God meets us in these very emotional and powerful ways. But back to the question, what's the spirit doing? What's the whence and the wherefore of all of our tears and chill bumps and laughter and dancing and lifted hands? What's the spirit doing? We might say this, the spirit is summing all things up in God. That's what the spirit's doing, summing all things up in God. The spirit is catching up all created realities, everything you've ever seen or experienced, every human you've ever met, catching all created realities up into their foreordained end when God is all and in all. The spirit in the tradition is often referred to as the bond of love between the father and the Son. So, such that what is it that unites God, if not God? God is the enactment of God's own loving self unity. And the Spirit is the ecstatic movement of God, the movement outside of God's own being to catch us up, to participate in the unity of God's own life. The gospel is not that you get to hang on for a few more years and then enter the heavenly courts. The gospel is that God is catching you up into God's own self-unity and dynamic reality. And you'll find that as you're caught up, that you're caught up with a whole host of people. John Calvin says that the spirit is the means by which Christ unites us to himself. And the spirit, therefore, is not effecting unity for the sake of unity. This is not, let's just all get along because we should all get along. No, the spirit is drawing us into the only thing that unifies, which is, of course, God, the creator, redeemer, sustainer of that universe. And so three brief points as we work through this poem together. And the first point is this, as it pertains to that spirit. One, we are gathered by the spirit. Hear me, we're not gathered by our own wills, We're not gathered by a common ideology. We're gathered by the Spirit. And just so, our unity is found in and by God's Spirit alone. We're gathered by the Spirit, and just so, our unity is found in and by God's Spirit alone. All right, here's what the psalmist says. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. We're used to reading the Bible And when we read it, we're used to looking for a command or an ethic, something that we're supposed to do. 
But we'll find more often than not that when we read the word of God, God addresses us first and foremost not in the imperative mood, for those that like grammar, telling us what to do, but rather in the indicative mood, telling us what is, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, regardless of what we ourselves are doing. The psalmist has a host of options to begin this psalm. He could have said, be ye united, for it is good and pleasant to do so. But he doesn't say that. He says something else. And we have to pay attention as we're reading poetry, not just to what the poem means, but to how the poem means. Does anybody love poetry in the room? Do I have any fellow poetry lovers? Oh, there's a handful of us shy introverts who like poetry. Others are like, if you read me a poem, I'll leave. And that's fine. It's too late. We've already read one. So we have to pay attention not only to what is there, but how it's there. The psalmist could have started with a command, but he doesn't. What does he start with? Well, he starts instead with an untranslated particle, a particle of exclamation. It's not here, but it's hine in Hebrew, and it means look. It's a way of getting your attention. It's a way, it's often translated behold in narratives to get you into the experience of the surprise of the, of the author or of the character. Look, says the psalmist, which is to say the psalmist isn't asking you to do anything. He's just instead showing you something that he's found to be absolutely astounding. And notice how redundant the poetry is. He doesn't say, look, it is good and beautiful. Mm -mm. He could have just said it's good. He could have just said it's beautiful. But he doesn't say it's good and beautiful. He says what? How good. Yeah? How good. Something that you say when you take a bite out of a delicious meal, you know. Or how Beautiful, something you say to your crush on a first date, yeah? This is, when you say how something, when was the last time you said that? Perhaps you were sitting in the car scrolling your phone like a mindless fool, and you look up, and there's the sky lit up with the colors of the sunset, and you say, oh, look how beautiful. It's a word of surprise, which is to say the psalmist has said, I've, I've seen something beautiful, and I want you to see it too. But hear me. What is it that the psalmist finds to be beautiful? Here it is. Brothers dwelling together. That's it. Some of your translations might add in unity to it, and that's a perfectly good translation. And of course, brothers is inclusive of both genders. It's brothers and sisters implied. But unity is not a precondition of the thing being celebrated. Harmony's desired, right? I say that as the parent of two who are home all day, Praise God, here in the middle of the summer, I'm playing referee all day long between two kids who seem to make it their life's mission not to like each other. I'm about to drop them off at the front of the school and say, it'll start in a month, figure it out. But, <laughs> so harmony is not a precondition of what the psalmist is celebrating. It's just good and beautiful when brothers and sisters are sitting at the same table and are in the same room. Here's where we people of God get carried away. We're type A people. We want to find a, a, a performative ethic, something to do. And so if God wants unity, we're gonna make unity happen for God's sake. If community's the goal, community we shall achieve. Where should we start? Well, we'll start where everybody starts with matching t-shirts, bracelets, <laughs> bumper stickers, mugs. Because what good is the army of God if we don't all wear the same color, okay? Secondly, now that we have our matching uniforms, we will now agree more and disagree less. That sounds good, doesn't it? Let's start there. But here's the problem. We can't even agree on the design and the color and the make and the cost of the t-shirts. 
much less the much more important things like doctrine and vision and policy. We can't even agree on what should be on the list of the things that constitute our agreement, right? Much less our positions on the thing that we eventually decide is on the list that constitutes our agreement. So we've got problems from the beginning. Many of you have already felt this as you walked in the room. You've just disagreed. You disagree with that line in the song or that song altogether. You've nudged your spouse or your family. You've expressed it to them. You've whispered to them. You disagreed with the style of the service or the time you were asked to be here or the things I'm saying to you right now. You disagree. And in fact, later, you're going to post these disagreements on social media because heaven forbid that the world be without our opinions for more than 10 minutes. Yeah? That's what the world has always wanted, to hear our disagreements. So unity is often difficult to come by. But let's say, just as a thought exercise for a moment, we could agree. 100% top to bottom agreement. We agree on the t-shirts, up to Bible translation, song selection, scripture, all of it. We agree. I would venture to say, should we achieve something like that, that that community would be formed more into our image than the image of Jesus Christ? That's unity at the cost of people who are not like me. We might all be speaking the same language, quite literally or metaphorically, but to use a biblical example, we're using that language to build a tower into the heavens, perhaps telling ourselves it's in the name of God. Or we might all be speaking the same language, but we've done it at the cost of the tongues of fire that are resting upon our brothers and sisters and leading them to proclaim the wonders of God in languages that are not our own. You see, in the hands of human beings, unity always just becomes uniformity. And when we can't achieve it, we quarrel and we fight because uniformity is fundamentally about control making you look like me or making me look like you. And should we even achieve that uniformity, we would be cursed by it. Because to achieve uniformity is to silence all other voices that are not my own, to put myself in an echo chamber, and to find when I do that that I've deprived myself from the truth and the voice of God. Because the voice of God always comes from outside me. God always calls the most unlikely of outsiders to proclaim his word. It's always from outside me that the word of God comes. Or let's say that I do want to achieve diversity. We often do it in very self-interested ways, don't we? We put diversity on a billboard so that people buy our product because they think we're inclusive. Or we act as though we have diverse friend groups and family groups so as to prove to the world how loving and open we are. But that's not about them, that's about us. And this is where the biblical poem has a wisdom that we don't have. What does the poem celebrate? Who's living together? Brothers and then sisters implied. How many of us in the room by a show of hands have siblings? How many of you fought with those siblings growing up? Yes, we still fight with those siblings, even as adults, don't we? We love them with all our heart. We can't wait for them to be here for Thanksgiving, and then we can't wait for them to leave, you know. <laughs> so good to see you. It's time for you to go home, you know. <laughs> siblings, difficult relationships these siblings are, but none of us got to choose our siblings. They were given to us. Christian community is not an accomplishment it's not a goal, it's a reality. I do not make my brothers and sisters, I receive them. They are given to me. 
my brothers and sisters are not the people who think like me and act like me and have my opinions. My brothers and sisters are those upon whom the spirit of God has fallen just as he fell upon me and has brought me into the relationship between Jesus Christ and his father such that all of us by that spirit cry what? Abba, Father. And I have no jurisdiction over where and upon whom Jesus pours out that spirit. If Jesus pours out that spirit upon this sister who is an enemy, she is immediately my sister. I don't have to make her my sister, she is. As Eugene Peterson says, there are no only children in God's house. And so, the community of God, we're not held together by our ideas. We're not held together by our ideals or our opinions. Those things matter, but that's not the basis of our unity. We are gathered by the Spirit, and only in the Spirit do we truly have one another. You do not achieve siblinghood with the person beside you. You already are a sibling. And as if you want to find uniformity, if you want to find unity, you can walk out of this room and go to the nearest special interest group or protest or political rally. You'll have a kind of unity there. But that's not the unity of God. As we are gathered by the Spirit, here's the unity of God. You look to your left and your right and you realize you're in a room with a bunch of people who don't look like you who don't think like you, who don't vote like you, who don't share your opinions, and you have the audacity to call those crazy kooks. And there are no weirder people than church people. Come on, right? And they're weird, aren't they? Aren't we weird? They can't sing, or if they can sing, they sing too much and too loud. They talk too much, they talk too little. They get a hold of you after church and they won't let go of you. They might lay hands on you in any given moment. Their breath smells. They're bad, weird people. And they are your brothers and your sisters. And how good and pleasant it is when we're just in the same room together. Because our unity is not self-constituted. It's God. You're looking for brothers and sisters? You already have them. You don't need to make community happen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets at this in his book, Life Together. This is what he says. The fact that we are brothers and sisters only through Jesus Christ is of immeasurable significance. Therefore, the other who comes face to face with me earnestly and devoutly seeking community is not the brother or sister with whom I am to relate in community. What is he saying? That the person that comes and says, I want to be your friend, that's not the only person I'm in community with. My brother or sister is instead that other person who has been redeemed by Christ, absolved from sin, and called to faith in eternal life. Our community consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. That not only is true at the beginning, as if in the course of time something else were to be added to our community, but also remains so for all the future and into all eternity. I have community with others and will continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more everything else between us will recede. And the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the only thing that's alive between us. We have one another only through Christ but through Christ we really do have one another. We have one another completely and for all 
eternity. Jesus isn't just the starting point of our relationship. He's the middle point and he's the end point as well. The surest sign that I'm being led by the spirit in my life is that he's taking me to be in community with those that I would never be in community with otherwise, even to my enemies. Psalm 23 says, the Lord prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. But that's not to say that the enemies aren't invited to the table also. Our our community subsists only in Jesus Christ. Point number two, we are filled with the spirit and just so we find our purpose in and by God's spirit alone. We're filled with the spirit and just so we find our purpose in and by God's spirit alone. The psalmist can't hold back. He's gonna tell you what it's like, but because you perhaps haven't experienced it before, he's going to use two similes to do it. It's like if someone were to ask you, what's it like to fall in love? You're like, it's like your head explodes, right? Okay, so he's gonna give two analogies, two similes. Here's the first. It's like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard. Now what's with this oily business? Yeah, well, it's not just a little bit of oil like we do in the common Christian or modern Christian tradition. If you've ever anointed someone with oil before, you just put some at the end of your finger and then place it on their foreheads, usually in the sign of the cross. But in the ancient world, it's poured out. Notice it's flowing down even into the beard. That's a lot of oil. What do we know about oil in the Bible? We know that it's a natural resource, a prominent natural resource of the land of Israel. So it's a sign of abundance and prosperity. It was often given as in gift exchanges between the elite and the aristocracy and the ruling classes in ancient Israel. So it's a sign of high status. And especially it's a sign of delight and joy and pleasure. Even a, even a sign of healing. Ecclesiastes 9 says you should enjoy whatever days you have left of your life because death is inevitably coming. And as a part of that enjoyment, you should never let your head be without oil upon it. So oil is like the perfume or the cologne that you don before you go to the party. It's a sign of excitement and joy and pleasure and healing and wonder, all of that together. And again, it's a potent image. Because it's, a, it's, not one, it's not merely one that we see, but it's one that we can smell because it's a fragrant oil. And not only that, it's also one that we can feel. Can you imagine it now? The drop of oil hitting the top of your head. It doesn't feel like water. It's thick. And it begins to pour down over your eyes and into the top of your ears and down into your earlobe and into your beard. That's a thick kind of oil. I watched the show The Office. Have you ever seen The Office before? Good, but there's other unsanctified people here. I was worried for a moment. And there's an episode where Dwight gives Michael the chills and he says, there's an an egg upon your head and the yolk is running down, right? You can almost feel the oil thick over the face and into the beard, which is to say there's a lot of it. But then as the poem unfolds, you look through the oil and you see a very particular face. It's not just any face, it's the face of who? Aaron. Aaron's the high priest. And so this oil is not just a sign of gladness and abundance and provision and blessing. It's now a sign of being set apart unto the holy things. The anointed things are the holy things. And so now, what's it like when we gather together? It's like that gladness. It's like that happiness, that prosperity. It's like that concrete interchange. The blessing of God is found not solely in the songs that we sing or the voice that you're hearing now, 
But the extension of God's presence to you is found in the handshakes that you had as you entered the room. It's found in the hugs that you'll give today and the kisses and the pats on the back and the laying on of hands. It's found in all of that physical interaction. Do you remember how much you missed this in the year that shan't be named? (laughs) Remember when you sat in your pajamas and worship. There are those doing that now. We pray God's forgiveness over your life. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Remember how much you missed this, that there's a potency to our gathering and there's a holiness to our gathering. And guess what? It's not from us. It's solely from the spirit who delights in pouring the oil on the top of our heads. First Peter 2 reminds us of that priestly task when it says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you also are anointed, dear Gentiles, that have been grafted into the promises of Israel. So put it on the resume. You're a priest. You can't revoke it. It's already been there. It's not earned. It's just a grace. You are a priest, which means every person that you've locked eyes with today Every person that you've observed in this room is a priest to you, which means that there's something of God you might learn in their eyes and in their presence and in their words. Six-year-old to 99-year-old, even the infant in the room, we might learn something of God as we gather together. But the Psalms like, that's not enough. There's more. It's not just like oil. It's also like, he says in verse three, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. What indeed does the Bible have to say about Mountain Dew? (laughs) Which are we to drink? Is it the Code Red, the Baja Blast? I got an amen on Code Red, that's fantastic. (laughs) Yes, it is true, it's in the Hebrew. If you read it closely, Code Red, blood of Jesus, you understand. All right, so what do we know about Mountain Dew from the Bible? It's delicious. Also. (laughs) The dew of Hermon. So dew is a natural resource in Israel, another one, and it's quite prevalent. So it's not just the moisture that's on the lawn that that makes the grass clippings cling to your feet in the mornings, but it's instead an abundant supply of water, a dependent supply even, especially below the snowfall line on Mount Hermon. Has anybody in the room ever been to the land of Israel before? If you have, Mount Hermon is the tallest peak in the northernmost part of the land. It's 9,232 feet tall. That's a tall mountain, beautiful, prominent feature of the landscape and the culture. Now, this dew, therefore, is often seen as a blessing of God because only God can bring that dew to the people. It's from heaven alone. But here's the subtlety of the poem. Mount Hermon in the north, that dew is flowing southward and reaches Mount Zion, and Mount Zion is in the south. How tall is Mount Zion? 2,510 feet. All right, that's not as tall as Mount Hermon. Are you with me? But in the eyes of the psalmist, the mountain of God's the biggest mountain that there is, so that's good. So uh, the dew of Hermon is, is a plentiful natural resource that's now flowing toward the south in Zion. Now here's what's so interesting. The distance between Mount Hermon and Mount Zion, you ask me, 120 miles as the crow flies, about 250 miles by car. They're not close. 
There's so much water flowing from Mount Hermon that it's overflowing the landscape. Are you with me? And as it overflows the landscape, it's now reaching the southernmost point into Mount Zion where God's temple and God's house is. That's a lot of water. And the water is healing the land. But there's another subtlety here as well. If you know the story of Israel, you know that Solomon was a very wise king, but also kind of an idiot. Because Solomon married a thousand wives and concubines. He worshipped all their gods. And it's because of that false worship that God tells Solomon that after he dies, God's going to take 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel from the line of David and they'll form their own kingdom in the north, the kingdom of Israel. And two tribes will remain in the south, the kingdom of Judah. And that's where uh, the line of David would persist. This painful rift is one of the most traumatic in Israel's memory. But what do you have here? Water flowing from the north, covering all the land of the north, overflowing the boundary between the two kingdoms, all the way up to Mount Zion, that what was once divided is now healed. How do you achieve that kind of healing? Solely the presence of God that alights upon the brothers and sisters that gather in the room. What's our job? to be together. That's our job. Cage match. Stay in the room until Jesus shows up. Unity is something that God alone constitutes. We wait for his spirit and it's by that spirit that we have purpose in the anointed task that we are priests and it's by that spirit that we are healed. So then with two beautiful analogies, notice also one last little nugget. It starts with very slow flowing oil that eventually reaches a rapid pace of rivers and floods and water. So as the poem unfolds, it picks up the pace. How does he end? Well, before we get there, one third and final point. We are blessed by the Spirit. We are blessed by the Spirit. And just so, we have a future in and by God's Spirit alone. We're blessed by the Spirit and just so, we have a future in and by God's spirit alone. Psalmist says this, for there the Lord, this is the first mention of God, by the way, God shows up. For there the Lord ordained, commands, appoints his blessing. And that blessing is life forevermore. This is what's key. In our gathering, it's not merely that we're getting a kind of dopamine hit from the spirit to help us get through the day. This isn't just a minor kind of manna to help us survive. But in our gathering together, there is a foretaste. There is a down payment. There is a, an early release, as it were, of the joy of heaven, the joy of eternity found in our gathering together as God commands his blessing there. When we often try to imagine heaven, I think we do a poor job of it. We often just take everything that's good in this life and we go, what's that 2.0, right? So it's good, I like chocolate. There must be a lot of chocolate in heaven, right? Uh, I like jet skiing. I wonder if there's jet skis in heaven. I like music. Are we gonna know how to play every instrument in heaven? Can we speak every language in heaven? Have you ever had these conversations before? It's fun to have these conversations with children, especially. Okay, but here's the thing. Maybe all that's true, maybe it's not. I don't know, I've never been. But when we get there, what if, what if it is nothing more than that for eternity? That's quite a disappointing reality. Because after, let's just say, a million and a half years of jet skiing, chocolate, and language speaking, 
you're once again bored, aren't you? So the psalmist knows that it's not just the fleeting pleasures of this life that are kind of increased to their maximum for the sake of pleasure in heaven. Instead, he says, I want you to remember, I want you to think about the last time that you were gathered together with people that you love more than anything in the world. In that moment, where you weren't insecure, where you weren't worried about what they thought of you, what they were going to say about you, where you weren't worried about your body posturing and do I look professional and your social face wasn't on. In fact, you lost complete sight of yourself as you were gathered there. There was no reason for the meeting. Nobody was going to sell you anything. Nobody was going to make a pitch at the end, an invitation, something where the conversation was inevitably leading. There was no agenda. You were just there, gathered around the table, telling stories and reminiscing and laughing till your belly hurts. When's the last time you had that moment? Laughing until your belly hurts and you lost track of time. After the meal was over and you sip the coffee and you're there and you look at your watch and it's 1.30 in the morning and you're saying, we gotta get out of here. We gotta get these kids to bed. You remember that moment? You didn't know if it was three minutes, three hours or three years, but you were lost. Ah, there, the Lord has ordained his blessing. There is life forevermore. Heaven, the giant table. Not just with those that we've loved here, but those we've never met. The giant table of laughter and joy. Eternity, not counted time, but experienced time. And who's at the table with us, if not the Spirit of God that dons our head with oil and that replenishes us with his waters and that grants us with his very presence. That, dear friends, is why we gather. Why does the church exist? It exists because God has gathered us and delights in the mere gift of giving us one another. It exists for his sake, for his purposes, and especially for his presence. Simon Peter learned this lesson the hard way. Simon Peter wasn't the most inclusive of persons, let's just put it that way. But there's a story by the, by the, uh, about a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. But he's God-fearing. And he's generous. And he prays every day. And because of that, one afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, he all of a sudden gets a vision of an angel. And the angel says to him, God's seen your obedience, Cornelius. And because of that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Joppa. There's a man named Simon the Tanner who has a house. And in that house is a man by the name of Simon Peter. I want you to go and get him. And so Cornelius, being the obedient person that he was, he's just talked to an angel after all, says, I guess I'll get a delegation together. He calls two of his servants and a soldier, and they go 32 miles south to Joppa on the sea. The next day, Simon Peter is sitting on the roof of the house. It's noon, and he's hungry. And as he's sitting there, he goes into a trance, and he sees this vision, and out of the heavens comes this giant sheet that's lowered by four corners, and on it are reptiles and birds and all kinds of unclean animals, and he hears a voice that says, get up, take, and eat. And he says, no, that stuff, that unclean stuff has never touched my lips before. Two more times he gets the same vision, and then it's over, and he's left staring out into the void, wondering if that's hunger pains or Jesus. And then he hears a voice. Well, before he hears the voice, the delegation arrives. They're at the gate. They're knocking. We're looking for Simon Peter. And then Simon Peter hears a voice and the spirit says, there are men here for you. They're going to take you to Caesarea. Go with them. I've sent them. So Simon Peter goes out and meets them. What is it I can do for you? He welcomes them, them into his home or into Simon's home. They stay the night there and the next day they travel back. When they get back, Cornelius isn't just alone. He's gathered everybody he knows into his house. 
they can't wait to meet this man that's sent by an angel. So when Simon Peter gets to the house, they walk in, Cornelius bows before him. Simon Peter says, I ain't God, so no need for that. And then he sees all these people and he's blown away. And Simon Peter, you know, not the most deft with the tongue. So he starts out his sermon by saying, you know it's against God's law for me to be here. Isn't that a nice introduction? I would rather not be here. (laughs) He says, but God showed up to me and so I'm here. What can I do for you? Cornelius tells his story of the angel that showed up to him and then Peter preaches the gospel, what he's seen concerning the resurrected Christ and we're told as he's talking, he doesn't even get a chance to finish the sermon, As he's talking, the Spirit of God falls upon Cornelius and his house. And Peter's companions are blown away because they're speaking in other tongues just like everybody else. And they thought this wasn't supposed to happen. So Simon Peter says, well, if they've received the same Spirit that we have, then what's keeping them from being baptized? They go out in the backyard, find the creek, and everyone's baptized in Cornelius' house. They stay for three or four days, but rumor gets out, uh uh-oh, Peter's been eating with the enemy. We can't have that. So he's brought before the church leaders in Jerusalem. And when he's brought there, Peter shares the story of what God has done. And he ends the story by saying this. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came upon them as he had come upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here it is. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? God had a whole other family for Simon Peter if he was willing to traverse the borders and the boundaries to find it. If you're being led by the Spirit, what enemies, what others, what foreigners, what different persons is the Spirit leading you to befriend? Last time we saw our disciples, they were confused and afraid and alone. These 11 men would never be caught dead in the same room together. It's a zealot, a tax collector, fisherman, a woman who'd been possessed by unclean spirits, all kinds of things. But nevertheless, they were all in that room. They didn't gather for some kind of diversity initiative with corporate. They gathered instead because the same Jesus called each one of them. And now they had brothers and sisters. Remember, they had nothing else except each other. They gathered in that room, and what happened? John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Oh, how good and pleasant it is. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. It's like precious oil upon the head running down. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For there, our risen Lord commands the blessing, life everlasting. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, what a gift we have. Oh, what a gift we have. You have not left us destitute. You've not left us alone. But we have the wonderful gift 
of the persons sitting beside us, our brothers and our sisters, breathing, living extensions of your presence to us. Oh Lord, but we're so poorly equipped to receive them well. Grant us the grace to be together. Grant us the grace to receive one another without making one another into our own image. Grant us the grace to dwell and to wait for your spirit to be poured out upon us. Today, we don't take for granted one another. Today, we choose to see in the eyes of one another your beloved son extended to us. Today, Lord, bring heaven in our gathering until the day when we see you face to face with all the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.